Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul grows bolder and openly tries to kill David. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 19 verse 10. Once again that's 1 Samuel chapter 19 verse 10. There are many occasions where I'm like, okay, Lord, oh Lord, I want to follow you. I want to do this right. And the Lord's like, okay, go make things right with so-and-so. Oh, no, Lord, that, no, no, that's not what I mean. You know, like, like I want to do right what's here. Over here, you know, we'll talk about that later. And the Lord's like, no, we're going to talk about it now. Because I can't allow that to just exist in your heart undealt with. Well, Lord, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to harden my heart. Well, then what happens when you do that is you grieve the Holy Spirit. And, and your flesh is in control. It's on top. And they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If we do that, we begin to wilt. We begin to, to wither. We begin to, to die in a sense. James chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about a double-minded man being unstable in all of his ways. It says in James 1, 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What does that word unstable mean? It means restless, unsettled, disorderly, unrestrained. When I'm double-minded like this, I don't have the same restrainers that I would normally have. I'm unsettled. I'm restless in my heart. I'm disorderly. Saul's life, his entire life will be a roller coaster because his heart's out of control. And that comes from being double-minded. Now, there is only one solution to being double-minded. And James gives it later on in the book of James. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. He says, where do all your arguments and fighting and boring and murder, where does it all come from? He goes, because you want something and you're not getting it. And so you're going to find a way to get it. He says, that's not good. That's the way the world lives. Don't you realize, he goes, I love James. He's speaking to people who are being persecuted, people who are losing their lives for Jesus. And he's like, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You're like, James, settle down, buddy. These people are struggling. But James knew that if they took the world's mindset, if they were going to respond to this persecution, if they were going to do it and, and say, well, we're going to fight fire with fire. This is the only way we can survive. This is the only way we can do it. He's like, that doesn't work. Can't fight Satan with Satan. 
Don't you know that that the spirit of God who lives within you, he, he's jealous. He wants you to do it his way. And he's never just going to go, ah, oh, fine. Just go be like the world. So it doesn't work. What you need is more grace. How I need more grace. Ugh. How I need more grace. I need more of God's help, more of God's work in my life. I need supernatural help. And so he tells us, well, how do you get more grace? He says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Don't you believe that if Saul came to the Lord and he said, Lord, I'm scared. You're not with me anymore, and, and I've made all these dumb mistakes. And I don't think there's any way I can fix it, and, and, and I'm scared if I obey you that it's all going to fall apart. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it, but I know I need your help. Don't you think that if Saul came to the Lord like that, that God would have given him more grace? God is not up there expecting that you just get everything right and you do it perfect. He knows our frame that we're simply dust. But he says, you got to humble yourself. If you're going to just stubbornly look at what I'm saying and say, no, that'll never work. And you just keep plowing ahead on your way of doing things. He's like, I can't, I can't work with that. You are hardening your heart towards me. You're being stubborn towards me. You're being prideful and arrogant. And that's, I can't give grace in that instance because you'll just barrel down that road more. But if you humble yourself and you go, Lord, this is a mess. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I'm jealous of David. He does everything right and I do everything wrong. And Lord, if I, I think if I just trust you, I'm just done for. God is sympathetic with that. His heart, it breaks for us when we cry out to him like that. He knows our frame that we're simply dust. And so that's why he tells us, therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Does that mean that God just wants to go on moping? No. These are, remember, James is Jewish, man. He's Jewish to the core. And what do they do when they're in repentance? They put on sackcloth. They, they put ashes and dust on their head. These are visible outward signs of a heart that's broken and shattered because of my own sin. That's what he's saying, do. Repent. Repent. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, verse 10 says. And you don't have to be afraid. He shall lift you up. Amen? Isn't that great news? No one likes being confronted with the fact that you're off base. I don't like having to come to the Lord and go, I'm a mess, aren't I? Like, I'm just off here, aren't I? I'm like, my attitude's bad. Like, like I need to repent, don't I? Yes, son, you do. This is not me at all. Where do I go from here? I mean, if I, if I do this, then I'll look weak or I'll look, you know, I mean, all the things that we think of. It's okay to have that conversation with the Lord because he'll lift you up as you say, Lord, I don't see how it's going to work out, but I choose to trust you. I submit to you. Take this thing, Lord, that's yucky right now and all nasty in my heart, and I confess it as sin, and I repent of it. Will you wash me, cleanse me, and do a new thing in me? He will. He does. 
he gives more grace. <laughs> Love in John chapter one, when it says, and the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And then in another part there, it says, and he gives grace upon grace. And the image there, it's like a present continual concept where it just says, he just gives grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. It just keeps coming if we just stay humble. Now, if you find yourself, like you, you would say, well, that's me. I'm on that spiritual roller coaster Saul's on. Well, then you need tons of grace and God wants to give it to you. But you need to humble yourself. You need to submit to God. You need to resist the devil, draw near to the Lord, cleanse your hands, purify your heart. How do you do that? Well, it starts by investing time into your spiritual life. Things aren't just going to magically change if you refuse to invest into your spiritual life. If you won't spend time talking to the Lord in prayer about things, then it's not just going to magically change. If you won't spend time in the Word letting Him shine the light on your heart to expose the things that aren't good, then things don't just magically change. Things will not magically change if you refuse to invest time into your spiritual life, no matter how many promises you make to God or to other people. But when you humble yourself and you submit to God by choosing to invest time into your spiritual life, well, God will give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and you will begin to change. It's his promise. Now, Saul didn't do any of that. So when David comes in to soothe his torment, as he's going through this mess again, Saul breaks his promise. So the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with a javelin in his hand. And David played with his hand. Verse 10, and Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with a javelin. It means he looked for an opportunity to spear David. But David slipped away out of Saul's presence. David had seen that movie once before, and he was not playing his part in it this time. And, and the idea, that the way the chronology works here in the Hebrew is, is the idea that Saul actually doesn't get a shot off. He actually doesn't take a swipe at David. David just starts seeing where this is going, that Saul's kind of eyeballing him, and he's like, ah, I think that's all the music I got for tonight, and he's out. And what happens is, is the idea, it's not that Saul slams the spear trying to hit David, but that this is his reaction when David leaves. The idea is that he is so angry when David leaves, he just slams his spear into the wall, and he says, you think you're going to get out of here, David? Uh-uh. So David fled and escaped that night. But look at what Saul says in verse 11. It says, but Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. I've heard about going postal, but I've never seen messengers do this to me. The word messenger here means an informer, someone who would normally do surveillance. But in this case, they're going to be assassins. They're sent there to kill David when he comes out of his house in the morning. And so it says that Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be dead. You will be slain. So Michael somehow, she either notices these guys watching or maybe she just knew her dad well enough to know they're not here to keep an eye on you, David. They're here to kill you. Whatever the thing was, she knew if her dad was willing to break his oath to the Lord to not kill David, that he would not stop there. So when she sees Saul's men keeping watch, she tells David, if you want to live to see tomorrow, you need to get out of here tonight. And so, verse 12, Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And then Michael took an image, a teraphim. These are household idols, usually family heirlooms that the 
Canaanites passed down. He, she took one of these family heirlooms, these family gods, and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster, for his pillow, and then covered it with a, a, a cloth, a bed sheet. This is kind of our first introduction to Michael the person. We've heard about her before, that her and David had a close friendship, and then, of course, they get married. But here we meet her for the first time in Scripture actually doing anything. And, and while there is much to criticize about Michael's behavior in the big story, um, she sides with what's right here instead of siding with her father. Uh, her priorities are with her husband, even though she loves her father. And it is a very manipulative thing that people say, well, if you really loved me, you would do this. Don't ever listen to someone who tells you that, they, that you don't care or you don't love them because you choose to put the Lord and biblical priorities first. Don't ever listen to that. That is a painful lie from the enemy to hear, and I know it hurts, but don't listen to it. Now, David, he's smart enough to listen to his wife's advice. I know many husbands who refuse to listen to their wife's advice. Listen, God created Eve because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, right? That's what the Lord says. That wasn't just to solve Adam's loneliness problem. The Bible calls her a helpmeet. It means a helper who comes from the opposite direction, a teammate who comes from the opposite direction. Ignoring the help that God sends you does not make you strong. It doesn't make you a good leader. In fact, it makes you unwise. So my encouragement to you is don't be a foolish husband. Take what your wife says to the Lord. Every husband should be praying about anything their wife brings up to them. And every wife should feel comfortable bringing something to her husband if she has a concern. I don't ever want Beverly to feel like she can't talk to me about something or I might react in a bad way or I might not listen or I might not take it seriously. Every wife should sense that her husband cares enough about her and believes that they have been brought together for a purpose that she, he, would, he should take, she should feel comfortable bringing the concerns of her heart to him. Now, while Michael is in the right here, what we see next gives us a glimpse into some of her flaws. Verse 13, to cover up David escaping, she takes, and then it tells us, the family idol. Now, I can't imagine David having a family idol, or if his family had one, I can't imagine David ever taking one. However, we already know later on that Saul has no problem going to consult witches, right? He consults the witch of Endor. So it's not a stretch to see that Saul, for whatever reason, may have thought it was okay to have this family idol. And then when Michael got married, maybe gave it to her. Whatever Michael's reason is for having this idol, the Lord strictly forbids them in Israel. Maybe she saw it just as a piece of art, like a family art piece or whatever. Whatever the case may be, the Lord forbid it in every way. So whether Michael's an idol worshiper or just going with family tradition— this thing has no business being in the house. And so we do see that there, there is a spiritual flaw here. Now, she puts this thing in the bed to make, pretend like it's David. And so when Saul, verse 14, sent messengers to take, to arrest, to seize David, she says, well, he's sick. And then, of course, she shows him, look, he's in the bed, he's sick. And so Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. In other words, Saul doesn't care he's sick. If David's too sick to walk, then bring the whole bed and I'll kill him there. And when the messengers were come in, behold, check this out, not David. It's a little idol, little statue in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his pillow, his bolster. And so Saul brings Michael in. She comes with the messengers. 
And Saul says unto Michael, why have you deceived me so and sent away mine enemy that he has escaped? When the truth is known, Saul is incredulous that his daughter would choose her husband over him. He's incredulous. And yet, what does the Bible say when someone gets married? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. And surely that applies to the woman as well. And cleave to her husband. Don't be that person that demands that others put you above everything else, even the Lord. Saul will constantly, constantly, all throughout, all throughout his life, be surprised that godly people do the right thing instead of side with him. He felt that way with Samuel. He feels that way with Jonathan. He feels that way with Michael. And it's going to happen over and over and over again with people who choose the Lord over him. And he's shocked every time. And it ruins all of his most meaningful relationships until Saul is a very lonely man. The only person he can go consult is some witch that he's banished to try to find answers. You will live and die a very lonely person if you demand that others put you above everyone and everything else. Please don't do that. Now, Michael's response is equally not good. Michael answered Saul, well, he said to me, let me go, for why should I kill you? Rather than speak hard truths to her father like Jonathan did, Michael accuses David of threatening to harm her. I had to let him go, Dad. He threatened to kill me. I'm not disloyal to you. He threatened to kill me if I didn't let him go. And this lie will become the first piece of evidence that Saul uses to turn many of his leaders against David. He threatened my daughter. He wants my kingdom. He is not our friend. He is our enemy. And thus Michael shows that even though she does a right thing overall, she's got some serious spiritual issues, some serious spiritual flaws. And these flaws will follow Michael throughout the rest of her life. They will show themselves and they will follow her because she never really deals with them. And eventually it turns her into the equivalent of her father. She becomes a bitter, lonely woman. When you have an opportunity to be light, even when it puts you at risk, trying to protect yourself by shifting blame or coloring yourself in a better light is always darkness. It's never light. Let's be those who are light. Amen? You know, let's love others enough to tell them the truth reasonably, but tell them the truth even at risk to ourselves. So David gets away, but where does he go? Where can he go? He can't go to family. Well, the only place, he goes the only place that a wise person does go. He goes to someone who does love the Lord to find out what to do. And so in verse 18, so David fled and escaped and came to Samuel, to Ramah, that's Samuel's home. And he told him all that Saul had done to him. And so he and Samuel went and they dwelt in Naoth. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. This is the first recorded conversation that we have between Samuel and David since Samuel anointed David to be king, which is interesting to me because they may have interacted afterwards. I have no clue. But if they had not interacted at all, you would think that Samuel would have been more involved. But 
there's no indication either way, but this is an interesting time that they meet. And it says that David just pours his heart out to Samuel. He tells everything that Saul did. And when Samuel hears about how much farther Saul has fallen, he knows, David, we can't stay in my house. If Saul's going to break an oath to the Lord to kill you, he is not going to hesitate to kill me. And so his thought is perhaps he will listen to a group of prophets who stand up to him. And so they go to Naoth. The word Naoth means residence or building. Most Bible teachers, the rabbis taught that this was the place where Samuel's school of prophets was. So basically he's like, let's not stay at my house. Let's go to the Bible college, you know? Let's go to the Bible college. There's a bunch of people there love the Lord. And let's see if together we can all convince Saul to stand down in his treatment of you. That's Samuel's thinking here. He knows there's nowhere they can run to get away from Saul because Saul's the king. But he thinks maybe if we go and we present a united front of godly men, you know, that say, Saul, this is wrong, that maybe then we can convince him to back down. Now, when Saul gets news of this, it does not deter him. He sends a squad of soldiers to arrest David, but it does not work out quite like he'd hoped. Verse 20. So Saul sent messengers to take David. Again, these are soldiers to arrest David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying. So when they get to the school of prophets, when they get to the Bible college, for lack of a better term. And Samuel's standing as appointed over them. So he's there. The phrase there means to stand in front as their leader. When they see him there, it says the spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul. And then they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messengers again the third time, but they prophesied also. Now, If you just read your Bible here, I'll be frank with you. I read this and I thought, I don't want to teach this because it's a little weird, isn't it? What is going on here? When we think of prophesying, for the most part, when we read about it in the scripture, it's just what I'm doing right now, teaching. It's sharing the word of God. Certainly it is times when you have like Elijah saying, thus saith the Lord, it's not going to rain for, you know, X amount of years. Uh, It's a time when Isaiah says, you know, thus saith the Lord, Here's the word of the Lord. Certainly there are times when it means that. But most of the time in scripture, it refers to those who are teaching the word of the Lord. They are teaching God's word. So what's weird is we go back to the start in verse 20. These messengers come and what they first see is they see a company of these prophets, these people that that Samuel has trained up and they are prophesying, they're teaching. So what does that mean they're doing? Does it mean they're all just you know, saying, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. I mean, that sounds weird. You know, I mean, is it just a cacophony of voices all just, you know, confusingly preaching at the same time? Who are they preaching to? Are they just all talking to nobody? That sounds weird. It seems a whole lot more likely that each of them had prepared a sermon to preach to the soldiers to show their unity in condemning Saul's arrest order. So when these guys show up, these soldiers show up one by one by one, probably short sermons, they just begin to teach. And they say, listen, the word of the Lord is this. What Saul is telling you to do is wrong. And one by one by one, they do this with the finality of Samuel standing as the leader saying, and I am in agreement with this. That seems to be the most likely thing that's going on here to me because I cannot see any biblical way. It's the other thing. So, I would propose then that when the last sermon was finished, that God's spirit fell on the soldiers with such conviction that they began to share scripture too. They began to preach as well. 
And this happens with three different squads of soldiers. Now, if you think, well, I think you're just trying to take a weird passage and make it normal, maybe you're right. But there's one other thought I want to throw out at you, and it's this. That God in the New Testament, through the Apostle Paul, says that he has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Can you think, I don't have to say this, I think the world has already communicated very clearly that it believes that it is useless to just get up and preach when there are problems going on around you. That you need to do something. And yet the Lord says that he has chosen the foolishness of preaching to affect lives. It's a thought. I can't think of anything that would be sillier from a world's perspective, from just a carnal, earthly perspective, than a bunch of dudes coming out and going, well, before you rest, David, we'd like to say something. And then a bunch of them just kind of preach small devotions. It sounds absurd. And yet it works. Because God takes the foolish things of the world and he confounds the wise. He takes the weak things of the world, right? To put to shame those things that the world calls strong. And you know what? While preaching may seem like a weak way to combat evil, if God says he chooses the weak things of this world to confound the wise, then I'll take what man calls weakness over what man calls strength any day if God calls it true strength. And I'm absolutely convinced that was what Samuel was thinking too. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Say